You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. It is Sunday 16. We've done 16 Sundays in Ephesians. We have done it, team. We, we could cheer more or clap would encourage your man. Uh, be like, thankful, Jesus. No. Uh, the good news of Ephesians has been the gospel changes everything. From the first page of Ephesians to the last page, it says that the gospel is the most important thing in the universe, what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, and what he's going to do. And I want you citizens to treasure when we do sermon series, not because they're so great or this or that, but keep asking, reflecting, God, in this season, what did you teach me or do in my life? That each sermon series would be a fresh moment to say, Lord, what are you doing in me? And that you would look with eagerness as we jump into our next one, as we jump into an Advent series to say, God, would you cultivate more things in me? Would you make me more like Jesus? Because if you're new to citizens, we teach through the Bible. We teach the scriptures each Sunday and usually working through a book. Occasionally we'll do a a topical or a topic series, but even those are rooted in scripture and are usually shorter. I can't wait to lead us into the next series. We're gonna focus on Advent, which is a fancy word saying Jesus is coming. And we're gonna reflect on Jesus has come and what it means of hope and joy and love from the Psalms, learning to worship Jesus as King. But Advent has a second meaning, that Jesus is coming as in Jesus is coming again. So when you don't feel filled with hope or joy or love or faith, The Advent speaks again that, yeah, the king has not returned yet. That we reflect back to Christmas, but we look forward to Jesus' coming. And that's what this passage in Ephesians talks about. What does the Christian do in the in-between? What's the Christian do when you're tempted to sin, tempted to be discouraged? tempted to believe lies that are peddled for your dollars or attention online or on TV? What do you do when you see violence on your TV again and again and again and again and again, and it feels like it's never going to end? What do you do with these things? And the Bible says it doesn't gloss over our pain. It doesn't gloss over suffering. It doesn't gloss over violence. Some of the stories in the Bible are so violent. They're they're, they're tough to read, tough to believe, tough to engage. And the Bible in this passage actually says things are even far worse than the news or popular culture would have you believe. The things are far stranger, far more evil than we usually dare to contemplate. Look at verses 11 through 13, and look who Ephesians says we're up against. Verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies aren't each other or other humans, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. When the news shows you violence again, it's just a poignant reminder of the present darkness against spiritual forces of evil 
that every superhero movie is tapping into something deeper, that yes, there is an evil out there scheming and lurking against us in the heavenly places. That is the air and the above surrounding around us in that ancient imagination. Verse 13, that you be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Church, we're warned that the devil is not only real, but as a Christian, as Christians, as the church, we wrestle against a very real evil. And the Greek word wrestle here means to wrestle. It means to physically grapple and fight, to fight against the devil's forces of darkness. Spiritual beings think demons, spiritual realms, these That's what it calls these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, this dark, twisted spiritual realm. We like to believe that there is no spiritual realm, that I'm in control of everything, that only my decisions matter. But the universe of the Bible says there's things opposing you, that darkness is tempting you, that it's not just a sin, it's a lure, that it's not just a lie, it's a scheme. It's not just getting the facts wrong, but it's trying to deceive you, trying to convince you that God is not good and that sin's a better way. And the devil's called many things in scripture. You might be tempted to say, Justin, I really loved Ephesians, but let's, let's keep it moving here. This is just weird. But we can't do that because the devil's spoken from Genesis, the Revelation, and just about everywhere in between. This is who the devil is called in scripture. He's called the devil by Jesus. Often, Jesus speaks to him. He's called Satan. Term means the accuser in Hebrew, head of demons. The serpent in Genesis and Corinthians and Revelation. Beelzebub, which is kind of the ancient religions around there. They picked up that name of Lord of the Flies and death. And you can see how they called him the prince of the air, that things die, then flies come and Death is this thing that the devil brings, the ruler of this world, the God of this age, the evil one, the dragon. And the truth is, what the Bible is telling us by emphasizing this so clearly is that whether we acknowledge it or not, we are at war that there's a spiritual war that's raged from the Garden of Eden, working through all these different ages and every culture across the globe, that sin has spread like the disease it is, turning us and us being manipulated by spiritual forces that are beyond us. Ephesians 2 made it clear that before we followed Jesus, we were led astray, we were taken in by these dark forces to keep us sinning, to keep us from believing, to keep us from trusting in God. And the devil, now that you are in Christ, this text says he schemes against you, that you are now the opposition to him. And this means no matter what the news tells us, other humans are not our primary enemy. It's not a war against one another but rather we're in a war where everyone's captive to sin and everyone's captive to Satan. And there's only one way people can be free. It's from a Jesus who sets the captives free. 
who opens our eyes, who forgives our hearts, who breaks our chains, who frees us to worship him, frees us to not be captives of the devil any longer. We can genuinely before every person in every country on the planet because we know that there's someone who hates them and hates us. And the only freedom, the only way to get free isn't higher education, isn't being a well-adjusted adult, but is to know Jesus, to have their sins forgiven and the power of Satan broken, that they could be free to follow Jesus and worship the true King, which makes the first mission of Christians to share this good news and demonstrate this good news that there's a king of another kingdom who's not Satan. With every good deed we do, with every gospel we share, we say there's another king. That the one who runs the show right now is not going to run the show forever. The God of this age will not be the God of every age. That instead, King Jesus is coming. That the second advent will happen. He proved it by rising from the dead. That on that day on the cross, he defeated the devil, a decisive victory, but the war is not over. Just like in World War II, we invaded Europe. We had a D-Day moment where we stormed the beaches of France with our allies. But just because we defeated Hitler and invaded Europe didn't mean the war was over. In fact, some of the bloodiest battles were yet to happen in Europe. Yet, decisively, the allies had won that the victory and end was sure. We live in the space between D-Day and the end of the war, at least in the European theater. And if our wrestling isn't against flesh and blood, and this is a spiritual war against evil itself, this is what we are told to do. Therefore, we are told to be strong in the Lord. Look at verse 10. It says, finally, after all the things said in Ephesians, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. As bad and as powerful as the devil sounds, all these titles, we have a Christ who is actually far greater than the devil. We have a Christ who is far more powerful, whose titles are above every name, in whom God is entrusting all things And the truth is that we see in Ephesians over and over that we are in the Lord, that we are in Christ. The book of Ephesians is telling you as a follower of Jesus, your identity has changed, that your primary thing is now you are in the Lord. That's where the strength is found, that we have a new source of strength that's not about us, but about what Christ has done for us. And look with me at the chapters of Ephesians. This is just chapters one through three. This is what it says you are. No matter who Satan says you are, this is who God says you are. If you follow Jesus in Christ, you are a saint. In Christ, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are chosen before the foundation of the world by God. You are holy and blameless in God's sight. You are destined and adopted in his love. You are redeemed through Christ's blood. Your sins are forgiven. You have a home in heaven. You've been given the Holy Spirit inside you. Man, he's just getting warmed up, made alive spiritually, united to Christ, seated with Christ spiritually in heaven, saved by God's grace through faith. Now you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. No matter what the devil says you should do tomorrow, God says, I have a different plan for your life. It's good works because you're mine. 
You've been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Did it say you've been brought near because you got it all right? No, it says because of the blood of Christ, no matter what sins you've committed, the ones you've never talked about, God says, I have brought you near, not because you got it right, but because my son did and brought you near to Christ himself. He is our peace, our access to God through Christ. We're no longer outsiders. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. It doesn't matter the family history. Yes, those things are important, but spiritually, your access to God is not determined by your ancestors, but determined by your trusting in Jesus. Jesus has come to save us and free the captives. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of the family. We got a seat at the table. We belong in the house. That turkey leg is for us too. Through the gospel, we're a member of Christ's body. Think about that. We use the word personal relationship with Jesus, and that's cool. The Bible says you're members of the body. That's cooler. I'm like, I want to think I'm like, a, like an elbow. Boldness and confidence to access God through faith in Christ. You don't have to be scared and nervous throughout your spirituality. That's other religions. You never know enough. You never read enough books. You never do this. You never met the right guru, blah, 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 blah. No, if you trust Christ today, you can now be bold and confident to go to God directly. You have no mediator. You don't need to pray through me. We can pray through each other. That's nice. That feels great. But you can talk to God. You can be bold. You can be confident. No matter how many times you've been spit on in this world, it does not matter. Because Jesus says, you're holy, you're blameless, you're mine, you belong at the family, and you can talk to me anytime you want because I love you and I've given everything for you. The devil will take every single part of you and say, don't worry about it. Jesus gave every single part of himself and says, now you're free and you're free to follow me. And I'm gonna lead you to an abundant life, a life that starts now and lasts forevermore. That's what eternal life is. If you're in Christ, it's already begun. We have reason to believe we can be strong. We're not just saying vague affirmations that are just, I wish these things to be true. Our affirmations are these. They're not aspirational. They're facts to nail down into our soul. We're strong not because of whey protein or Pilates. We're not strong because we, we, we got good parents. We're not strong because we have enough money. Spiritual strength is not for sale. It's not found at Regions. It's not found at Charles Schwab. It's not found at Wells Fargo. It's not found in your mortgage. Spiritual strength is for the war to wrestle, to win. And is found in the Lord alone. And that's the gospel. Ephesians is about the gospel changing everything. We were once followed the devil's ways, but now we're free to follow Jesus. And that makes the gospel our living hope in a hopeless world, in a world that feels hopeless, in a world that makes us feel alone, we know we actually belong. Not to this world, but to Jesus himself. And we use our strength in the Lord to do what? This text actually tells us four times so we don't miss it. If anyone tells you something four times, you're either, well, four years old or... It must be very important. Look at verses 11, 13, and 14. 
says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you're able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Yes. Christians, we don't retreat. We don't turn back. We don't roam around looking for fights. Instead, we are strong when the war arrives in our life. When the devil brings lies, accusations, suffering, death, pain your way, Christians should be like nails. The harder we're hit, the deeper we go. Church, we say it all the time at Citizens, and it's time we keep believing it and going deeper. Your problems are the path. The world says, here's how to avoid them. Here's how to solve them. Here's a quick hack. Here's a BuzzFeed article. That's not the truth. The biggest problems on your life is exactly where God wants you to walk through the stuff. You're having problems with your spouse. You're having problems with your kids. You're having problems at work. You're having problems working through your emotions. You're having problems dealing with your family history. You're having problems figuring what you should do next in life. Don't ignore it. Don't press it down. Don't don't throw it away. Don't complain. Just say, Lord, I don't know what to do. Seek wisdom from God. He says, if anyone asks for wisdom, he'll give it. Ask for help from others. God's purpose is that you would be holy and humble. So let's not be the people who avoid our problems, but step into them with boldness and confidence saying, I belong at the table with God. And these problems aren't the biggest enemy in my life. I have an enemy. And these problems are probably the path God wants me to walk through with him. This next year, we've read the New Testament for those sticking with the Bible reading plan. Way to go, team. If you're behind, you still have time to catch up. There's 40 days. That's enough time to double time it and finish the drill. We're going to walk through about half of the Old Testament, and you're going to see these people's lives are filled with problems. It is not the story like everything just goes pretty well. No, that's no one's story. That's not even Jesus's story. So how can we expect anything else? So much of false Christianity tells you you're to pursue a problem-free life. And Ephesians has told us we shouldn't create the problems in our life. We shouldn't lie and hold grudges and do evil things. That's creating our own problems. But problems are gonna come either way. And so when the problems come, will we stand firm? saying everything we just talked about is true. I am in Christ. There's plenty of strength for me to stand firm, that I can be like a nail. I can be hit hard, but just go deep. And what he goes to is Paul says, I need this to sink in. I need this to sink in. And so he goes to an ancient warfare kind of motif or metaphor. He talks about what an ancient warrior would wear into battle. And he does this for a bunch of reasons. One is because in Isaiah, it talks about God himself wearing this stuff. Talks about this belt of truth and righteousness and all this stuff. So if you grew up a little Hebrew boy or girl, you knew these things. You knew, oh my gosh, I get to wear my dad's clothes because I'm in Christ, I'm in the Lord. But if you're a Greek who had never read the Old Testament, this is just all new, come from paganism, they could just look around because what he describes in this metaphor is what the Roman soldiers all around them wore. 
They would have been in and out of the port city of Ephesus. They would have marched through town. They functioned largely as kind of military police hanging around for better or worse. Everyone was familiar with these things, even if we are not. Few of you are swordsmen and women. If you are, let's start that club. We will be that church. LARPing, LARPing for the glory of God. But there's one other reason. And this one I find really compelling. That if you grew up Greek, and probably maybe half the church or more was Greek, you grew up reading stories or having stories read to you from Homer and Herodotus, who are the ancient Greek authors who wrote these epic tales like the Odyssey or the story of Troy or the histories like Spartan history is from Herodotus. And in these stories, how you would know someone is really cool and they're gonna be the hero and that this is the climax of the story is they would do something called an arming sequence where the slower and the more they talked about their hero getting dressed, it mean the badder dude that they are. They talked about putting on their shoes, putting on the shin guards, putting on their breastplate, putting on the helmet, what their spear and their sword, and it goes on and on for pages. And the idea is, remember, they don't have movies, that it lets the child build in their mind exactly who this hero is going to be and what's about to go down. And this is what a Roman soldier looked like. Grumpy. Got some fly sandals kind of coming in out of fashion for a couple centuries. The shield is gigantic. It's like a small household door. Got a fun hat, lots of armor, maybe a couple swords and a lance of some type. Now, when I hear this arming sequence, which we're about to talk about, I don't imagine myself as a grumpy Italian man, okay? I like to imagine myself more like this, a young Brad Pitt from Troy. 2003, I have no idea what's in the content of that movie anymore, so I don't recommend it. But he's looking good. There could be a she version. You know, the Lord wants you to be pumped in reading this like a little Hebrew or Greek boy or girl that this is the stuff of your dreams playing in the olive groves, on the mountains, that this is supposed to be something to encourage you, that this is what it's like to walk in the gospel. This is what it's like to stand firm. So listen to verse 14. This is what it looks like. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth holds our outfit together. We base our life on truth. We don't have to wonder how the world ends. We don't have to wonder at the point of life. We know Jesus will return and that Jesus tells us of himself in John 14 that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. The breastplate of righteousness, it covers all of our vital organs. And I like to think of it that the devil can't have our heart any longer that Jesus' righteousness is now our righteousness. We can be hit, it can hurt, but no longer can we be destroyed. Verse 15 is the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You saw those nifty sandals, but here it really is speaking that the gospel makes us ready. We got our shoes on. 
to share that gospel. And this is what Paul's gonna pray for. Even Paul, the greatest theologian missionary of all time says, verse 19, 20, pray for me. Pray that I have the boldness. Pray that I keep it up. Pray that I don't get scared. Pray that I don't run away. Pray that I stand firm. Pray that I share the gospel boldly. And he wants the same for you. And most of us, I've almost met no one who feels very confident in sharing the gospel. When we do membership interviews, no one's like, that's my favorite part. I can't wait to share the gospel with Justin. And trust me, it's gentle and fun. We, we go through what the gospel is. But if you want to feel more confident, I just urge you to go. This is where I share gospel is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Take a look with me. If you want to be more familiar, you can break it down like this. We'll put it in the newsletter. But it walks people through a simple gospel. This isn't everything in the Bible by no means, but it's a great summary. It's a clear gospel. And it goes like this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we were dead in sin and did not follow Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, God's made us alive through his son Jesus to save us from sin and love us. Ephesians 8 and 9, or 2, 8 and 9, God's gift of grace saves us from sin, death, and punishment. We accept this gift through faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 10, accepting the gift, God has a plan for our lives to follow Jesus. And I love sharing this way because after each point, you can stop and be ready to say, share with me how you were dead. What was that like? Share with that coworker, share with that family member. Then share, what was it like to hear about the free gift? The free gift of salvation, the free gift of God's grace. What was it like to accept that gift and believe? And finally, what, God, what is God doing in your life right now? Verse 10. It's such a natural way to share both your story and scripture's story to prove to them, look, it changed my life, it can change yours too. Often we overcomplicate overcomplicate sharing our faith. That we're gonna have a perfect method or a perfect way or perfect this or perfect that. And to be honest, church, I would rather you just share. Go ahead and throw that pitch, throw that football, run that race, take a swing. The Lord is with you and he loves you. He's not judging you all the time of how great it was or how perfect it was or what you left out. Just get out there and let's just swing. It says, keep your shoes on to be ready. And you'll notice as you spend a little time in, co in, in competence, a little bit preparing yourself and a little bit of time praying for opportunities, suddenly you'll want to risk because our competence leads to a healthy confidence in life. And you know this, if you know how to do something, you want to do it more. So spend a little time reading Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Pull it out of the newsletter, put it on the mirror if you wanna grow in sharing your faith this year. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts or arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we're filling out this picture of what it looks like to live in gospel armor. And it says we should hold up this huge shield of faith. Why? Well, the main attack of the devil in your life is probably going to be lies, discouragement in many forms, and accusation. And what God wants you to do is to hold up that huge shield of faith and let the arrows of those hit those instead of sticking your body. When the lies enter your head, 
that you actually aren't a saint, you actually aren't belonging to Jesus, or other people speak those lies in your life, recognize them if they are lies, let them hit the shield, bounce off, and don't give them another thought. It is not worth interrogating and going deep into things that you know are not true. Discouragement comes, things happen, we acknowledge it, we take it to Jesus, we ask for help, but we don't let the arrow stick in our calf. We don't let the darts burn us, but we understand this is hard and we take it to Jesus. But when Satan accuses, and it's actually the truth, it's a little different. Because the Christian can say, I agree. That you remember that your story is now Jesus's story. You can hear the accusation. Justin, look how you failed as a husband. Look how you failed as a dad. Look how you failed as a friend. Look how you failed as a neighbor. Look how you failed as a pastor. And if it's true, I can just say, okay, I do fail. I do sin, but I have a shield of faith that my faith is in Jesus the perfect, not in Justin the sinner. The goal is not my performance, but Jesus's perfection. And it takes the power right out of those darts and arrows that you don't have to ignore your sin, but rather say, yeah, I repent, I take it to Jesus, and my faith rests in the shield of faith to protect me instead of trying to justify myself to anyone. It is Jesus who made the decisive victory over the devil. And so when we think of the helmet of salvation, let that frilly hat of the Romans encourage you. It's a little bit of a war hat, a little bit of a party hat. It's great for salvation. The war is won and it's time to start celebrating. When we worship up here, when Shayla and Denzel and Josh and John Champion are leading us, the reason we worship with enthusiasm is that we are God's people, that we actually have a reason to wear a frilly hat and get down. If you don't know Jesus, there isn't a lot of reasons to sing. But I encourage you to become one of Jesus's people, to trust in the God who wants to crown you with salvation, frilly hat or not, that a helmet of salvation means that there is a party to be had, that we're going to win the war. And the only offensive weapon given to us is the sword of the Spirit, which says is the Word of God. When it says the Word of God, it probably means the gospel here, kind of how they share the gospel in Acts, and it multiplies and it grows and it moves from city to city that your sword is to believe the gospel, to apply the gospel, to share the gospel, to live the gospel. How we make the biggest difference in our world will be how we apply and work this gospel into every little area of our life. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z. There's nothing in our life that doesn't need the gospel to become our lens and look. And if we want to wave a sword and make a difference in this world, we must first put the gospel, how should I work? Well, let me think about it with the gospel. How should I live? How should I love my spouse? Well, I should probably forgive them because God has forgiven me. That's the kind of gospel logic that leads to difference making in our life because the gospel changes everything. And the only reason we have access, the only way that makes sense to even access this gospel armor is prayer. Look at verse 18, it fits right with it. 
says, this is how we use all these things. This is how we ask to make it real. This is how we ask to make the breastplate of righteousness feel like a breastplate of righteousness, to make the helmet of salvation feel extra frilly, to make the sword of the spirit feel like something we can apply the gospel to our life, to have ready feet praying at all times in the spirit. This is how we talk to God with all prayer and supplication, which is a fancy word for asking God for help. See, for Paul and for the Bible, prayer is not a last resort thing, but an all the time thing. And it's an all the time thing when you realize you're at war. Most Christians don't pray much because they don't feel the need. Because when we feel need, we tend to solve it, right? We're bored, we seek entertainment. We're hungry, we get a sandwich. We're lonely, we call somebody. What if you felt the need of being at war? That there's someone actually scheming against you. That you're a saint, but you're a sinner too. You can't even trust yourself fully. That you need a God by his spirit to put this armor on you, or you're just kind of running without armor into the battle every day. Shock that you lose. We will never stand firm until we see we're at war and we depend on God in prayer. We don't ask like a genie, but we pray like we're at a war and that prayer is the key to unlocking our understanding and living in the gospel and daily life. One of my favorite pastors puts it this way. It says, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom for ringing up the butler to change the thermostat. It is a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy is greater than we are. Sit in that a minute. If Jesus is perfect and God and praying throughout his life, how much more his followers who are definitively not God, definitively sinful, definitively weak and low in understanding. Prayer is essential to Christ. That means it should be an all the time essential for us. If you try to turn this into a domestic intercom to bring another pillow, it malfunctions and you wonder why. It's not made to be an intercom. It's made to be a wartime walkie-talkie. We pray all the time, seeing the great need for prayer, just like we have a need to eat. Do you realize we put on gospel armor because we're outgunned? Our strength is found in the gospel. It's found in Christ. It's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or figuring it all out. It's relying on God. The gospel is applied through prayer so we can stand. We have reason for hope in a hard and a hopeless world. The gospel is enough for us today and forever, no matter the schemes of the devil in your life. Remember, church, that one day the war will end. We will trade in all the armor for robes. No one's wearing armor in Revelation. No one's wearing armor or fighting the war in heaven. But instead, one day you want the war to end, and it will. It will end with you in a robe, praising the lamb that was slain, Jesus himself, as the conquering king and hero. Trust in him now, believing that he will come, believing that the gospel is good news for you and me, in this whole weary world.